This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. And the second in a two-part series on what's new in death. There's a lot about death that isn't new. We've always lived with death. It's the condition we all end up in. It's been the focus of cultural fascination for pretty much as long as humans have been around. But philosophers are still finding new ways to think about death, new questions to ask about the ancient mystery of non-existence. And taking us through some of those questions this week is producer Patrick Stokes. Philosophers have been talking about death and dying for a very long time. And there's certain key questions that we keep circling around. Precisely why is death a harm? Is it rational to fear death if, as many philosophers assume, there is nothing it is like to be dead? Can we harm the dead or benefit them? And if death really is a harm, would immortality be even worse? These were just some of the topics covered at the 5th International Association for the Philosophy of Death and Dying Conference, held at Deakin University in July 2022. One of the most striking things about the philosophy of death is that it continually returns to a set of key texts. In particular, we keep coming back again and again to a challenge famously posed by Epicurus, How can death be bad for us if we don't exist when we're dead? In the last few decades, philosophers who want to oppose Epicurus' idea that we shouldn't fear death because we won't exist when we're dead have gone all in on a competing view, deprivationism. So I think the deprivation view is the default view that uh, anecdotally seems to be uh, accepted by the majority of people who work in the field, with the uh, contrasting view being Epicureanism, the view that death is not bad for you. I'm Travis Timmerman. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at Seton Hall University. So death can be bad in many ways for many different people. But the reason that it's bad for the person that dies is because it prevents them from additional good life. So if your death is bad for you, It's bad for you, not in and of itself, but because and to the extent that it prevents you from things that are good in and of themselves. Deprivationism uh, captures a lot of, I think, people's intuitions about the intuitive badness of death. It does do that, um, but not completely. There are some, as with any view in the literature, extremely counterintuitive consequences. But I think the practical upshot of the view is that it preserves this link between events that are good or bad for you and the self-interested reasons that you have to seek or avoid those events. So contrasting accounts of the badness of death that try to separate the event of death itself from what your life would look like had you not died, I think have to sever that link. And then there will be cases where death would be bad for you, but of all of the options available to you, you should seek it, or it won't be bad for you, but all of the options available to you, you should avoid it. And I think that is of little practical value Uh, Whereas the deprivation is is able to maintain this nice uh, link between what's prudent for you to do and whether some event is good or bad. It makes sense to say that death deprives us of goods that we would have otherwise enjoyed had we not died, and therefore death is bad. Equally, deprivationism can make sense of why some deaths, 
may be better for us than not dying. But as Travis Timmerman explains, things get interesting when we start to ask what sorts of deprivation or loss are going to count as lamentable. So imagine somebody who is terminally ill, they uh, are dying from a disease that's incurable, and the only sort of feasible options available for them are continued life of so much suffering as to not be worth living or to end their life and avoid that suffering. Standard deprivation view, the one that I like, would say it would be in their best interest to avoid living that life that's not worth living for them. So the event of their death would be in their self-interest. But it's nevertheless lamentable, it might be tragic, terrible in various ways, that they don't have another option of living a much longer, happier life. In fact, I think the best option would be infinite goodness. So in a way, it's lamentable that everyone's death precludes this possibility of infinite good, even though the event of the death could be, uh, prudentially speaking, good for the person. So I think what we really care about and what we really can appropriately lament is not getting additional good life. We can do that no matter who we are, what age we are, what species we are, what our expected lifespan is, what our socioeconomic status is. I think it's perfectly fitting to lament not getting infinite goodness. But here's the trick for that. There are a range of options that are also much worse for us than the life that we actually have. Uh, So the contrast of infinite goodness would be infinite badness. If it makes sense as many people seem to think it does, myself included, to lament for it to be a fitting attitude to not have infinite goodness ahead of you, should we also be quite relieved that we avoided infinite badness? Uh, And I think most people want to say no to that, Uh, whereas I want to say yes, because any attempt that I can think of, and this might just be a limit of my own sort of philosophical abilities, but any attempt that I can think of to try to find a principal distinction between what sorts of goods and bads uh, we can appropriately lament Uh, seems to fall short. It's going to be arbitrary. It's going to make arbitrary distinctions or it's going to be extremely ad hoc or it's not going to get the desired extension. There's lots of challenges to the deprivation view. So uh, one of them concerns events that are, uh, to use a technical phrase in the literature, overdetermined. So that would be cases where two different events cause your death at either the same time or in close proximity. And the deprivation view has to say, that uh, your death is not bad for you in that case. So you can imagine somebody who's fighting in a war, uh, they're shot and killed uh, by an enemy soldier, and suppose that it's true that if they hadn't been shot and killed by the enemy soldier at that time, they would have been shot and killed by an enemy soldier, let's say, you know, 10 minutes later. Then the deprivation view entails that the death uh, by the first bullet was hardly bad for that person at all, because it only meant that they missed out on an additional 10 minutes of good life. There's lots of solutions to that. Uh, You can say that it's not bad for them, but they still should have lent missing out an additional good life. That's why I want to go. You can talk about what are called plural harms that Neil Fight has a book coming out with Oxford that defends this account in great detail. That's excellent. Or he says, well, the death by the first bullet was barely bad for the person at all, but the two uh, people shooting in tandem, that considered together was quite bad for the soldier because if neither of those two things happened, then they would have lived a much longer life. Or if there's three soldiers or four, then you can expand the sort of set of events that are quite bad for the person. And there's also this question about if death is only extrinsically bad for you, uh, does it make sense to uh, have any sort of serious negative attitudes towards that just in virtue of the fact that we tend to not think uh, many things that are extrinsically bad for us warrant those attitudes. So there might be some sort of special pleading that seems to be going on for the deprivationist. 
Um, and then finally, there's a question about when death can be bad for you. So the deprivation, it says it's bad for you insofar as it prevents you from missing out a good life. But if we're assuming that you cease to exist after you die, it seems odd to uh, say that that is bad for you. Is it bad for you after you're dead and you no longer exist? Seems weird. Is it bad for you before it happens? That seems weird because things tend to not be good or bad for you before they happen. Is it bad only in that one instant that you die? That seems weird because we tend to think death is very bad for people, but if it's only bad for an instant, then perhaps it doesn't seem so bad. So that is a challenge for the deprivationist to answer those questions. Another controversy among philosophers of death, going back at least as far as Aristotle, is whether the dead can be harmed or benefited. We take it that it's wrong to slander the dead or to break deathbed promises. But how can you harm someone when they no longer exist? I mean, I tend to think that we can't be harmed after we die. And so I, I also don't think that preferences that don't affect our experiences are, are worthy of consideration, but, um, but other people will disagree. Uh, well, I think it depends on the view that you have of what posthumous harm is. So, in a nutshell, I think of it as things that happen after you die can affect how well your life goes. I'm Reese Southen, and I'm a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Oxford. I'm Andrea Asker. I'm a PhD student at Stockholm University. Much of the debate over posthumous harm turns on the nature of harm itself. To be harmed... Do you have to suffer unpleasant experience? Or is it enough that your interests are frustrated, whether you know about it or not? Someone might prefer that the world be a certain way after they die. And in that case, we might think that they're harmed after, after their death if the world is not that way. A classic example would be someone who's sort of built some kind of empire and it, it crumbles the moment they die. And they, so they never know about this throughout their life. They think their, their empire is fine. And so this doesn't affect their experiences. But a lot of people want to say, well, this, this harms them, that this thing that they worked for throughout their entire life has, has been destroyed, even though they never found out about it. And this happened after they died. And some people have that intuition. And if you think that that has to do with, for example, desires, um, and living have desires about what happened, after they die, and these are obviously satisfied or frustrated uh, by the events that take place after their death, then it seems somewhat plausible that if desires matter to your well-being and these can be satisfied or frustrated in virtue of posthumous events, then there seems to be some sort of relevant connection. We go out of our way to do things for the dead, from holding funerals to campaigning for legal pardons for people unjustly convicted of crimes long ago. But do these practices actually benefit the dead? Or are they really for the benefit of the living? People talk about getting justice for the dead. And, and it's not just that, that we think this will make currently living people or future living people feel better that we've sort of exonerated someone or um, yeah ab absolutely people do think that someone's well-being can be affected after they've died but in many cases maybe they haven't totally thought that through but in many cases they have and um, David Boonin is someone who's concluded that yes like if, if if someone's project is completed after they die 
and in, in a way that they would have wanted this benefits them and if it's and if it's not then this this harms them even though it didn't occur while they were alive and other people think and I, I would be more inclined to agree with this that funerals are for the living and and, and so we feel bad if someone's project is interrupted uh, sort of on their behalf. Maybe we have a sort of mental model of how we could imagine them feeling about this if, if they knew about that. And, and this is sort of affecting how, how we feel about that. That's, that, that's, that's kind of how I feel about it. Like I, I have mental models of people who I care about in my mind. And I think about if, if they died and, um, and something were to happen that they would be really upset about, I would be sort of upset on their behalf. But I don't think they would actually be harmed, but it kind of feels like they are. But I think it's because I have this mental model of how they would feel about it. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. This week, Patrick Stokes is reporting from the 5th International Association for the Philosophy of Death and Dying conference that took place recently at Deakin University in Melbourne. While Rhys Southern and others hold that posthumous harms and benefits aren't really harms or benefits, others disagree, such as Michael Cholby at the University of Edinburgh. So I do, in fact, think that we suffer or can suffer posthumous harm. What we mean here is that uh, an individual can suffer a harm due to events that occur after her death. You might think, of course, that that's very strange if we don't exist uh, after our deaths, then uh, it seems difficult to imagine how we could be harmed by events that take place after our deaths. Of course, many people have believed that we do survive death, that there's an afterlife or immortality. But supposing that that supposition uh, is false, then it does seem odd to suppose that we could be harmed by events uh, after our deaths. But I don't think it's actually so difficult to imagine. I think the explanation for how this can be so is that we form desires while we're alive, desires that can be um, thwarted or fulfilled after we're dead. So desires, for example, about what happens to our bodies or what happens to uh, our personal belongings or our wealth um, are uh, desires that can be thwarted or fulfilled after we're dead. People can or cannot fulfill the terms of our will. They can or cannot uh, bury us or enter our bodies in accordance with our wishes. Now, it may, that seem, may, may seem a bit strange because, of course, uh, if in fact death is the cessation of our existence, we won't know about our desires being fulfilled or unfulfilled. But I don't think we need to know or experience the fulfillment or frustration of a desire for these facts to contribute to our well-being. After all, if someone uh, secretly betrays us and we never know about the betrayal, it's still true, I would say, that the betrayal is bad for us, even if we never come to learn about it. Or alternatively, uh, imagine a positive event that you never learn about. So, for example, uh, people forming uh, positive beliefs about you, uh, holding you in high esteem, say, uh, assigning you a good reputation. It seems to me that it's um, beneficial to us. We, we benefit from that, even if we don't actually uh, end up finding out that people have a high opinion of us. But as Andrea Asker explains, the idea of posthumous harm does raise a range of difficulties. Yeah, so there's an idea of um, another timing problem. When does this harm um, occur. And so one way to think of it is that it occurs while the person is alive and, for example, holding um, the desire. And in that case, we would have to say that it's at that point that the harm occurs. But 
The other view, the atemporal view, is that the harm occurs at no particular time. It just happens. Uh, there's a general question, so sort of if the tires matter, then which ones matter to your well-being? And so, um, for example, it could be the tires that are um, relevant to the, the person's life, uh, that are not intrinsically irrational, and you sort of weed out the tires that you think wouldn't matter, and you get to sort of a, a core set that you think are more important than others. And so I think those are the same ones, maybe, that would matter in case of posthumous harm. So maybe the ones that have to do with uh, the success of your central projects throughout your life, or yeah, other things that are very important. So I mean, one central question with posthumous harm is that you pretty much have to accept that there is such a thing as unfelt harm, that things that you don't experience can uh, be bad for you in some sense. And if you don't accept that, then probably you're not going to be convinced by most arguments for posthumous harm. I mean, I guess digging up a corpse, and if you think that that's some, if that constitutes some sort of degradation to a person, um, and he had a desire for that not to happen, then that desire is frustrated and that harms him in some way. Or you might think of it as a more, in more general terms, like it's, it's, bad, it's a bad thing for you to have uh, your corpse be degraded or for people to disrespect um, something of yours um, or your memory after you die, and then... You can think of that maybe in the atemporal sense, that it's bad that that sort of was attached to your life. Yet another ancient problem that's still bothering philosophers of death today was posed by the first century BC Roman philosopher-poet Lucretius. It's called the Lucretian symmetry problem. In the simplest terms, if death is non-existence, then why are we bothered by non-existence after death, but not by all that time when we didn't exist before we were born. Non-existence is non-existence, right? So if we're not fussed about prenatal non-existence, then it seems we shouldn't be upset about post-mortem non-existence either. Here's how Travis Timmerman and Reese Southern respond. Just as it is bad for us to miss out on additional good life, after our actual death. I think it would also be bad for us to miss out on additional good life if we were born earlier than we were in fact were born. Now, there's a question about whether it makes sense to talk about us being born earlier than we in fact were. Um, one way to imagine the scenario is if I were born in say 1976 rather than 1986, if I were born 10 years earlier, but everything else in the world were the same, uh, I would be the same person I think in terms of personal identity, but my actual life would be very different than the way it is now. My friends uh, would be different. Maybe my family would be different. My interests would be different because I'd be shaped in the time and place that I was born. So a lot of people think, and I think they're right about this, that you shouldn't want to be born earlier in that scenario because it changes the sort of details about yourself that you care about. What Ray Kaufman calls your thick self. Um, but you can also imagine scenarios in which the whole series of events that shaped you removed up earlier in time, uh, and then you get longer additional life. That's a far-fetched scenario, but I think that would be good for you. It's appropriate to lament missing out on that, even if it's a highly improbable scenario. Travis has, has written a paper about like, making the argument that there's no sort of real distinction between Epicureanism and deprivationism, although there, there is a, a version of Epicureanism that is clearly distinct. Not a lot of people seem to accept this, but I do know someone who does, which would be just the idea behind it would be that we can't compare existence and non-existence. And 
And this is true for someone who never exists and could exist, or someone who does exist and could cease to exist. There's, there's just no way to compare existence and non-existence and sort of like both of these ends of a life. In which case, we have to be totally indifferent about existence. So um, if, if our life is really good, we flip a coin about whether to continue it. If our life is really bad, we flip a coin about whether to continue it. And I, I mean, I, I think this view is ex- extremely implausible because it would mean that we would have to be indifferent between ceasing to exist and going to hell for eternity. And I, I think like, that would be really hard for most people to accept. So, so that version of Epicureanism, I think, probably doesn't have a lot of defenders. But just, yeah, the, yeah, the sort of intuition that ceasing to exist is relevantly like never existing. And so we should just draw all our conclusions from that. Um, t- to me, it, it just makes sort of logical sense if we just think that death is a blank, just like never existing is a blank. I, the fact that one used to exist, I just don't see how it affects that blank. Most of us, I suspect, if we're being honest, are a bit afraid of death. Philosophers have looked at that fear and those negative attitudes towards death and said, well, that's all fine in practice, but will it work in theory? As you've heard, we now have some fairly solid, if not quite decisive, arguments available to support our intuitive sense that death is somehow bad for us and worth avoiding. So, if death is bad, not being able to die would be pretty good, right? Right? I'm Adam Buben. I'm a uh, university lecturer at Leiden University in the Netherlands. So the, the, the history of the desirability of immortality debate uh, is about 50 years old, uh, give or take. Uh, I mean, granted, people have been talking about whether you'd want to live forever, whether something like heaven would be, would be nice for a really long time. Uh, but the contemporary debate is about 50 years old, starting with, with Bernard Williams' uh, famous Macropolis case article. Adam Buben's referring there to British philosopher Bernard Williams's landmark 1973 paper, The Macropolis Case, Reflections on the Tedium of Immortality. Williams builds his argument against the desirability of immortality around the 20th century Czech play and opera, The Macropolis Affair. The main character, Alina Macropolis, has taken an elixir that has kept her alive at apparently the same biological age for 300 years. And so he he basically has a very pessimistic view of things using this Macropolis case literary example um, to suggest that, uh, that if you were immortal, you would either end up irreparably bored uh, or you'd have to lose your identity. You'd have to become a different person in order to keep life novel and interesting. There's just a nonstop flow of articles uh, about whether immortality would be awful or meaningless, sometimes reinforcing what Williams had to say, sometimes uh, offering different arguments about why immortality would be necessarily uh, awful or meaningless. Uh, And then on the other side, there are defenders of immortality who think Williams missed some things and that uh, the more recent arguments about why it would be awful are are also missing missing the mark. The main arguments offered by the so-called immortality curmudgeons like Williams aren't about things like running out of resources or overpopulation if everyone lived forever. 
Rather, they're about the ways in which true invulnerability to death would deprive us of things that are in fact essential to living well. Some people think that that would necessarily change us. We would we would lose all sense of of urgency or or uh, the the sense of risk that informs so many of our decisions now. Uh, we would have no no life structure or stages. We just kind of meander aimlessly. There would just be no no meaning to life, and that's really what the what the debate is about. I think you could also include at some point suffering. And I, honestly, I think that's that's my my main concern is uh, there there are certain scenarios that just sound so awful. If you couldn't die, if you're completely indestructible, and somebody throws you into space and you're just floating aimlessly for all eternity, because there's just not enough stuff in the vastness of space that you're likely to ever hit anything ever again. So you're just floating alone aimlessly, and that would create a, a kind of, of, of psychological suffering that would be so horrible. Um, so, so those concerns bother me, but mostly people talk about whether true indestructible immortality would be meaningless. And that, that I think, is, is much more up for debate. Um, even if it's possible that, that things could end up meaningless across infinite time, I don't, I, I haven't, I'm yet to hear any argument, compelling argument that says it's necessary. It's definitely going to happen. For example, the you know these arguments about life would have no urgency, we'd procrastinate, every, put everything off, you know, uh, or there'd be no risk or structure. Um, all of these things seem just seem inaccurate to me, given all of the different sources of urgency and risk and structure that we have in our lives now, uh, and and so many of them don't come from from us having an endpoint. They come from the the situations we find ourselves in, or the 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 limited the limited space we take up indestructibility uh, especially of course we're getting very fantastical here but if you're indestructible roughly in your same bodily shape you know there are certain things that uh, that i still can't do i still have limitations i don't think being immortal would mean i can jump infinitely high or run infinitely fast i'm always going to be constrained in certain ways and that's that's going to be a source of uh, at some point be a source of urgency and and risk uh, and structure. So although I think those concerns of the curmudgeons are important and, and need to be taken seriously, I'm not ultimately convinced that immortality would necessarily lead to a meaningless or uh, an existence that we wouldn't want to live. At the end of our three days in Melbourne talking about death, I find myself strangely optimistic. The topics are undeniably grim. But even in the face of global pandemics, war, and all the other thousand shocks the flesh is heir to, philosophers keep looking for reasons to care about life and about living well. Perhaps, if there's any immortality to be had in the human story, it's not to be found in biological enhancement, but in that deathless conversation. This has been The Philosopher's Zone and part two of What's New in Death, produced by Patrick Stokes, who's Associate Professor in Philosophy at Deakin University in Melbourne. Guest details on The Philosopher's Zone website, and if you missed part one of this two-part series, you can find it via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. 
And I'm just going to mention before we go that RN's Soul Search this week has a wonderful episode in which we hear from an end-of-life biographer, someone who sits at the bedside of someone who's dying and records their life story. It's a really interesting story and you can hear it on Soul Search, another great RN program that you can find via ABC Listen. And it's thanks from me, David Rutledge. See you next time.